Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. On the surface, Stephanie Dandler's story reads like the Hollywood version of Overnight Success. Her debut novel, Sweet Bitter, hit the lit scene hard in 2016, becoming the cultural phenom of the summer, and perhaps the most beloved and recognizable book cover in recent memory. The novel quickly morphed into a television series on stars. And unlike other shows spun from best-selling books where the authors are relegated to venerable fact-checking roles, Stephanie was at the helm calling the shots and creating the Sweet Bitter series of her dreams. And adding to the wave of good fortune, just as production for the second season was underway, Stephanie gave birth to her first child. Sounds pretty dreamy, but Stephanie's real-life story boasts considerably less sparkle. Having been raised in L.A. by a single mother, Stephanie as a teenager was sent to live with her routinely absent and drug-addicted father. She eventually attended Kenyon College, becoming estranged from her parents and moving to New York to write. But like most people, she had to pay the bills, too. So Stephanie secured a job at the legendary Union Square Cafe, owned by the equally legendary Danny Meyer, who cultivated a famously close-knit family-first atmosphere among his even closer-knit staff. Here, Stephanie may have found the familial tie she had long yearned for, and fell headlong into the intoxicating subculture of Manhattan's restaurant world. But the calling to write never really went away. Shortly before opening her own wine bar, after nearly a decade climbing the food industry ladder, Stephanie basically took a flying leap off the top. She had to. It was finally time to write her book. At 29, with no experience or professional ties outside the restaurant world, Stephanie made the choice to go back to school with nothing more than a nascent novel idea, about a young woman coming of age in and around the kitchen of a notorious New York City restaurant. Two years later, Sweet Bitter was born. Things have moved fast for Stephanie since then. She's now a best-selling author, a producer, and a crossover celebrity in the food and literary worlds. As a post-Me Too public figure, she's also a vocal supporter of those fighting the systemic harassment and abuse in the service industry. On top of all that, she's getting used to being a new mom, and putting the final touches on her latest baby, a collection of essays you could say is a long-awaited memoir. Hers isn't a story of overnight success or dumb luck, but rather one of desire and risky gambles, as well as the messy work of finding yourself. She's still in the thick of it, making sense of her story even as she writes it. But as Stephanie Dandler knows, it's not about finding your happy ending. The best part of any story is the part where you just keep going. Stephanie Dandler, it is such a pleasure to have you on Unstyled today. Thank you so much for being here. It is an honor. I was so, so excited when I heard this was happening. Oh my God. I'm so surprised and so happy to hear that. Sweet Bitter is the book that you wrote. It's your first novel. Mm -hmm. And we've met before actually at a Bon Appetit lunch, which was celebrating the debut of the book, which was, I think it must be four years ago. 
Is it three mm-hmm. years ago? No, four years ago. Four years ago. And thank you for reminding me of that. But reading the book, honestly, I said this to you, and there's very, very few examples of this. It made me want to be a better writer. And I think as an essayist myself, I don't write fiction. I'm really in awe of people that write fiction because I think it is such a gift and a skill to really have the commitment to really be able to immerse yourself in this character and in this time and place and really live out that whole experience to make it really believable. I love this book so much. And I actually am a huge fan of the Stars series as well, which just came back with season two. Yep. Season two, July 14th. Congratulations. I would love to hear about your background and just like where you grew up and when writing really became an important medium for you. It's funny. I'm writing nonfiction right now and exploring that time in my life and my childhood and this story. And as I've told the story over and over again, I'm so aware of the narrative that develops, but there is this theme of writing really coming to me and saving my life multiple times. Um, It's the only thing I ever wanted to do. Um, I started writing as soon as I could write sentences, Um, started writing stories and I was always getting in trouble for them. There was like this very like gothic, violent, (laughs) like nowadays they would probably take me out of school. But my mother was always being called in. And I remember one day my my grandmother picked me up from school and she wanted to hear about one of the stories that I'd written about a girl that goes to a slumber party and becomes possessed. Uh, This is in second grade. Mm -hmm. Obviously. Obviously. (laughs) The Ouija board gone awry. And I remember that... I told her, and I was so scared of ridicule, but she was like, you're a writer. Never stop writing. And Was she a writer? She wasn't. Why do you think she said that to you? What about her? I mean, because I can't imagine any relative ever really saying that to me. Yeah, and my parents wouldn't have. It was her. She was a complicated woman. She was incredibly intelligent and a pretty violent alcoholic, but she had an intensity and fierceness to her. And I think that she really appreciated the arts. And I think that I have this word that I throw around like a poet soul, and it's an artistic sensibility. It's a set of eyes that you put on the world and musicians have it. And sometimes someone on the street you wouldn't expect has that poet soul within them. And I think she recognized a sort of intensity and a curiosity that I had at such a young age. And she really demanded that I continue writing. And I mean, that's just the beginning. I was a very troubled adolescent coming off of that killer short story about (laughs) the demons. But was that what it was called, The Demons? No, was I don't it? remember what it was. It's like The Slumber Party. Oh. I mean, I'm like eight years old here. You're really good at titles, I have to say. The Slumber Party. <laughs> did you come up with The Unraveler? I'm assuming that you did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. That's really a book in itself. but uh, It's part of the next book. Okay, good. Um, cause we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get to we'll that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But again, there's this moment of a teacher keeping me after school, this assumption that I'm going to be in trouble, that I've done something wrong, and him saying, you're a writer. And I didn't get into a single university, no college. I was on my way to a community college, and he 
fought for me to be accepted to Kenyon College in Ohio, which has a great writing program. That's a really good school. And I was waitlisted and I had to beg. I flew out there twice. I sent them every short story I'd ever written. And I actually graduated still not from high school, still not being accepted. And I was a barista and I was like, okay, this is my life. I'm going to be a barista and go to community college and I'll figure it out. And then they accepted me. And again, it's this moment of being seen as a writer. My life just sort of hinges there. And it could have gone an entirely different way. But the writing always was the through line. Even these reckless early 20s days in New York City, waiting tables and all the drugs and all of the nocturnal living. And I was accountable to the writing and to this dream I had to write a book, to be an author. And so I'm not qualified to do anything else. It's all I've ever done. I think a lot of writers feel that way. It's a calling in a lot of ways. You really can't deny it. And I think that when you talked about it saving your life at certain moments, I think that even just like writing in a journal, it was the beginning of, you know, even writing about my pain and I think making sense of it. There's something about when you put it on the page that it does two things. In my opinion, it actually validates it, mm. validates this thought or this feeling that you have and you don't have to worry about anyone judging you for it. I think there is that struggle, especially as writers or any kind of creative person, there is sometimes that inner struggle about what will people think of me if I say this thing. And sometimes it can feel hateful, it can feel crazy. But I think that it does that, it validates it, but then it also kind of separates you from it. So you can have a different vantage point to understand it and make sense of it. And I think that there is so much truth. I don't think you need to be a writer to... Yeah, and I think there's a, a very special kind of cathartic witnessing that happens in being able to read these words on the page and maybe approach them with more compassion than you're able to in your head. You know, when you're talking about journaling and writing something hateful or angry or stupid, which, you know, all of us are so terrified of saying something stupid, writing something stupid. Especially now. Yes, of course. Constant surveillance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but being able to look back on those words and kind of treat yourself with a generosity or kindness that I don't, I can't necessarily accomplish in my head. I mean, that's therapy. That's the whole point. So when did you start working on Sweet Bitter, the book? What was I doing? I was managing restaurants. My ex-husband and I had a restaurant, and I was the wine director for a small group of restaurants, including Tia Paul in Chelsea, which is a fantastic place. And I was working there, and I had started to write down the chatter at the bar at the end of the night, and I would just write it down on my commute home, the, ta the tasting of the wine and the cursing and the this sort of snippets of conversation that all overlapped over each other and never completed themselves. And I thought there was a book there and I applied to graduate school in secret. I didn't tell my husband. I didn't tell my bosses. Why didn't you tell your husband? I couldn't commit to that life. Which life? That I might go back to school. Got it. That I might stop what was a very 
successful career in the restaurant industry and also an identity, which I think the book is very much about. And he's, you know, my ex-husband. So it wasn't right that I didn't want to tell him. I didn't recognize that at the time, but I was just so scared. Yeah, It's hard at 30 years old to tell adults that you're going to go into a ton of debt and go back to graduate school because you've been taking notes on your train ride home. I mean, I'd been writing all these years, but I hadn't really written since college. I was just here. I was just living. I was working two jobs, trying to survive, falling in love, making a life. And It's like starting a business. Oh, my God. It's exactly like starting a business. With no capital, and the risk is through the roof. Exactly. And I was really embarrassed. I was really... Isn't that funny that in retrospect now you, you realize that, and it just seems so courageous to me to see that this is something that you really want to do regardless of all of the drawbacks and all of the obvious challenges that it's going to bring up. Yeah. I try to stay close to how scared I was because I think it's really easy, again, in telling these stories about yourself. It's like, I had an idea. I took a risk. I sacrificed. And the truth is, I was so close to failing. Many times my marriage fell apart. I was in a deep depression. I didn't think I could finish the book. Then I couldn't function in the world. I could only write. And I thought, I'm never going to come out of this. Did you leave New York to do graduate school? I didn't. I went to the new school. Wow. Um, And I was working at Bouvet, and I had gone from managing to waitressing. I saw you thanked Pouvet in your acknowledgments. Jody was so, so supportive. I went to writer's residencies. I think finding those people along the way, like that woman that you mentioned from Bouvet or that teacher that pushed you to get into Kenyon College, there are these sort of guardian angels in a way that are just kind of like moving you along on your path because there is so much resistance. Mm-hmm. It is a hard, hard life. It is a very hard, very unstable life. So are restaurants, it turns out. But um, I think that there's so much pretension around something that is really about nourishment and community. Yeah. But the people that I know that really love food, that aren't food professionals, but are kind of natural gourmands, at the end of the day, it's not about the... Premier Cru Burgundy. It's about an honest wine that you feel happy drinking and the people that you're sharing it with. It's like that idea that a chef of a fine dining restaurant, that an omelet or a roast chicken is a mark of how they can cook. It's these simple, once you learn all the words and you learn how to classify everything and you learn how to make the sauces, at the end of the day, it's the simplest things. Yeah that are the most elegant and the mark, I think, of a life well-lived, those very simple, sensual pleasures. But all the rest of it is just show, right? It's uh, it's theater and it's commerce. So you were writing Sweet Bitter um, while you were on these writer's colony, like when you went to these residencies, like you were just making it work while you were working at Bouvet. I went to my first residency, Birdcliff, um, in upstate New York, right when I was graduating from school. So I started school, and I wrote the first sentence of Sweet Bitter that's still the first sentence in there, and 
I was, I felt like a f- every morning I woke up in like a fever. I just n- couldn't believe that I wasn't working in restaurants full time, right? I had gone back to part time. I couldn't believe I was writing and I had this sense of urgency. Like my time was really limited. Oh, and also being that age is just like, it's, it's it different. feels like a, it, it literally, you feel life barreling at you. Right. And if you don't start to make honest choices soon, I felt panicked. Yeah. I felt like I Absolutely. was going to completely fuck up my life if I did not listen to my heart. Well, I mean, that I used to say that I went back to school because I didn't want to be an old woman at a bar crying that I had this idea for a book. Um, and so graduate school, the MFA program is two years. And I said, I'm going to give myself these two years to do this book. I worked on nothing else. You know, I didn't socialize afterwards. I had multiple jobs. And then just a few months into starting the book in school, my marriage, which we had been together for like seven years, it just evaporated in this terrible downward spiral talk about making choices I mean there were some bad choices made and then all of a sudden I was living with six roommates in deep Bushwick and I had nothing else but the book you know the restaurant was gone that identity was gone it's like whiplash oh my god I'm still catching up sometimes I was just every time I write about that period of my life and I talk about it a lot, but I talk about the book and I'm like, oh yeah, I was so focused at school and I had this vision, but I was kind of blacked out from pain the whole time, just blacked out. And I woke up and I had a first draft of a novel. And so- I will um, say that is the upside of pain is good writing. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good for your writing. Mm-hmm. I find that when I'm happiest and most content, it's harder to write. Of course. It's harder to kind of extract the, I don't know, just the, the words don't come as easily. It's yeah. just, it's really hard. And it's also really hard for me to become obsessed with an idea because I'm, I think that just happiness and levity is just. Well, it's presence. Yeah. And in order to go into this world, you have to retreat in a way you have to not be living in order to be writing about living. And so I always think to myself, like, is it the life or the art? It's always the life. It's always has, the focus has to be on the quality of, of your minutes, which I talk about in the unravelers, but, um, that is one of the upsides to pain. Let's talk quickly about The Unravelers. You wrote an essay, a really beautiful essay, in the Paris Review in 2015. And there is a reference to, well, the concept, I guess, and you'll be able to explain it better, is the idea that so many people are either weaving something together, building something, or The Unravelers that are just really taking it all apart. Mm-hmm. And um, you said your great-grandmother, who you actually referenced earlier, was a master unraveler. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I think that... Well, what was that essay about first? That essay came from Anne Hood, who was the editor of a compilation of essays about knitting. And I was waiting on her at Bouvet, and she was a professor at the new school, and she knew that I had a book that was coming out. But she said, I'm putting together a book about knitting. Do you have anything you want to say? And I was like, no, I, I don't know the first thing about knitting. 
I could write you a piece about wanting to be a knitter. And she was like, great, send me something. I wish it was that easy to pitch something <laughs> and, get, and get the assignment. Well, I don't think she wasn't telling me that it was going to go in the book. She uh-huh. was saying that she would read something yeah. that okay. I wrote in a that's still a good wonder, start. Wonderfully kind uh-huh. professorial gesture, and I began to think about people that can knit in sort of this peaceful, divine, maternal symbol that knitting has become for me in my life and that I come from a line of women with a knack for self-destruction and what is the opposite impulse of putting things together, of weaving, of making something that can hold a shape. The opposite impulse is destruction. I mean, it really is chaos and I feel that no matter how I tried, I always came back to this moment where I woke up from some sort of blackout of pain and my life was in pieces. But that essay really is about destroying my marriage and not understanding why and feeling feeling like it was my fate to always destroy things. And then... Do you believe that now? I don't. I don't believe that, but that has a lot to do with my son and a lot to do with my partner, my current husband. And... But I do... The impulse is still there. I'll never be free of it. And I think that's what it means to be an unraveler, this impulse to break your life to pieces, to burn a bridge, to walk away. And it has a lot to do with the women who raised me. Let's talk about the women who raised you. And you also have spoken about mentors and how you've always been drawn to complicated women and have always been sort of in search of mentors. Tell me a little bit about that. I had a strained relationship with my mother Is she still here? She is still here. She lives in Los Angeles, and as a part of the book I'm currently working on, it's talking about her. She had a brain aneurysm 15 years ago that left her disabled, but also she doesn't remember most of it. Most of what? My childhood, the turbulence. What's the headline of the turbulence? It's so easy to blame. I mean, she is depressed, alcoholic, who had a hard childhood herself and she didn't know how to raise us. She didn't know how to connect and she didn't know. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How to stop hurting or put her hurt aside, which I think as a mother, I'm coming to see I'm a very new mother, so I don't want to make any statements about anything because I have no idea what I'm doing, but 
you do have to put your pain aside and you do have to take the role pretty seriously about what you're showing your child about what it means to be a human and how life works. I do think sometimes, at least in, in also, I'm as a new mother myself, I, I want to join you in that sentiment. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but I do think that having a somewhat fraught relationship with a parent, it does make you kind of come into parenthood with a much, much different perspective and a much different sort of eagerness to want to get it right, mm -hmm. which I think packs its own sort of set of expectations and disappointments. Yeah. I don't know if you experience that too, if you feel like I'm going to get it right no matter what, like this kid's going to know that I love him. Yeah. I mean, I'm away from him for the first time and it, I mean, nauseous. I do think that having come from a pretty broken s set of parents, there's maybe an anxiety Vortex. Once you have to start making decisions, which it just every single day you're making decisions with no information in a vacuum and altering the course of this child's life. I mean, I was paralyzed, paralyzed for months, and I do feel like I'm coming out of it. But were you depressed after you had the baby? Oh my god, it was I know, disgusting. And I have been talking about it with other moms as much as possible. Also having a baby in the winter is just like short days, it long was really short nights. days, really long nights. And I think that there was an article in the New York Times, a friend sent it to me. It made me so angry. It was an essay from this woman who had also had a baby in the winter months and how she really missed those memories of herself in the middle of the night, nursing her son and having this loving bond and like having the quietness of the city. And I just felt the exact opposite of that in the middle of the night. I just felt terrified. I just felt scared. I was in anticipation of every sound, every mistake, every illness. I wasn't prepared for the physical crash yeah, of having either. a baby. And I'd never felt that way before. I was a mess. And when, when do you think you turned a corner? I mean, I think I turned a corner. Rafi was born on October 18th and she was seven weeks early. And I think probably March... It was when she started sleeping longer chunks in mm -hmm. the night and I felt like a bit more comfortable with the routine. It didn't feel so erratic. And and she's sturdier at that point, which yes. I, was like a relief to me as he started becoming. I'm still kind of a wreck, to be perfectly frank. I still have a lot of anxiety, probably mm. more anxiety than most parents considering my, my history, but... I think it really brings you to your knees in a way, especially since I'm an older mother. I think that I have a different kind of appreciation for even being here in this situation, but it has literally made me surrender in ways that I just never could. I really credit a really, really dear friend, Mara Egan. She just was one of those people, and you probably had a handful of them, not many, that just gave you the real talk. I that just my, let you be my as one like mom mentor friend who just showed up again and again and again. And every time, every morning, I said, this is too hard. I, I can't do it. And she said, it's going to get better. You're already doing it. I think just having somebody to be able to say those things to, I'm just always going to be grateful to her. It wasn't even that she spent so much time with me, but she just 
talked to me and spoke to me in a way that was just like anything you're feeling right now. It's totally okay. Mm-hmm. And it's not anything I've never felt before. And I couldn't share that with barely anybody. I think that like that article that you were just talking about, so many friends of mine are having kids and they're like, get ready for the bliss out. And I'm like, the bliss out? What the (laughs) fuck? It's really frightening. How are you doing now? I'm so much better. This was like crying for hours a day, every single day for months. And then- Yeah, all the time Around, as soon as it started to get dark, the dread like (gasps) creeping up on me like- I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it through another night. That's it. It's this dread that would happen as soon as like it started getting dark. (laughs) I was like, oh, it's going to be such a long night. It's just really yet another thing that so few women talk about in very honest terms. I think they're starting to, right? There's a culture of awareness and postpartum depression isn't such a... I think it actually is still a really scary term to people. Like even now I say, oh, I, I had a really hard time. I'm not sure that, but that's textbook postpartum depression. I'm coming out of it, but with the help of a lot of friends and a therapist and a doula and all. It takes of, a village. Yeah, <laughs> not just like I'm coming out of it, you know. I love him so much and I do and it's disgusting. Gusty, and it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Rafi like threw up in my mouth because I was holding her up over my head, and it didn't even bother me. It like did oh not God, even bother no, me. I totally. was just like, just wipe it away. It's not a big deal. It's a very strange sensation to feel those feelings of sadness and despair, but also to feel the greatest love and just wonder. It's just like she's such a profound curiosity to me, and just like observing her and getting to know her and wanting to sort of be. I mean, we can have a whole other conversation about what I want to be to her, Mm. you know. just want to go back to the complicated women. It said, oh, yeah, can I just read course. this? I just want to read this quote too. Yeah. And this really kind of references the relationship between Tess and That's Simone, so. who's a really interesting character played by Caitlin Fitzgerald, who I love so much. Yeah. And I will tell her that. she. I'm going to see her tonight. And Are you really? Yeah. We're kind of Instagram friends. And I also love her so much on Succession. And I want her to have a bigger role because I think she's just her hairstyle and succession is like so I mean she's in the next season oh good I'm so yeah. glad she's I am I allowed to say that I don't know <laughs> I loved her in Masters of Sex I've loved her in every single thing she's, she's really really incredible and she plays Simone so well but you were talking about in an interview about Tess and Simone you said I've been shaped by female mentors I've always sought them out I'm very attracted to strong and complicated women which means that I was hurt many times by strong and complicated women I mean, I feel that. And that starts at home with these women that I'm talking about, these unravelers with addiction issues and a lot of anger. But then crazy isn't a very popular term, but I mean it in the most positive way. Like I want the woman that's coloring outside the box. I want the person that's making life on their own terms and 
it's not a recklessness, but there's something like slightly contrarian because I think you see women in a way that men don't. We see our lives laid out, which is I'm going to get married, I'm going to have a baby, I'm going to be a mom and a wife, and these are my roles. And I think men are going to do all of the same things, but their lives are so much more open in a way when they're imagining. And so... I've always been drawn to this artistic temperament and those women can be really mean and I kind of respect it. Like it kind of arouses me in a certain way to see a woman that's not polite, not necessarily likable. And over the years, whether it is a teacher or a chef or a businesswoman who owns restaurants and they're so intense and maybe the relationship is close to toxic, but like I can't pull myself away. Like men are too easy. They're just like, they're men. They do what you want them to do and they like toddle around. (laughs) But (laughs) to be in this relationship with a woman is to constantly be testing yourself and who am I going to become? Who am I going to become? And part of that is a void of role models. And part of that is just the way that I am. I'm just drawn, drawn to women. So let's just talk about season two because Mm -hmm. it was just released on stars and it's such a great show. I mean, I can't even imagine what you feel like a, to have this worldwide bestseller, which is sweet, bitter, but then also to have it made into a show. That's not just a show, but a really, really good show. I'm very proud of it. Television is a complicated workplace and a complicated medium for me. And how did it come about that they approached you? When Sweet Bitter came out, I had a team of agents at CAA who wanted to wait on optioning the rights. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the people in Hollywood, any book that comes out is being optioned more or less. But it's this team of women and I was just going to option it and go away and write my next book. And they said, I think that you can write this. And I was like, oh, I've never watched TV truly. So you didn't just have the book optioned. You were really attached to write the treatment. I was. And so we- That's a lot of pressure. We held, but we held on to it. We didn't option it. I developed it. I wrote it. I found the showrunner that I wanted to work with. I found... Who's the showrunner? Stu Zickerman. And how did you find this person? It's a man, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Okay. I met with a dozen people and he was a New Yorker and he was in LA for the day and he sat down across from me and I just adore him. We have the best relationship. But in that first moment, he was like, listen, restaurant shows don't work. There's no stakes in is the food going to get to the table or not. But what you've done is you've put emotional stakes. You've made a family drama in a restaurant, and that can work. And then I found Plan B, Brad Pitt's production company. I did just notice that he's attached (laughs) to it. I was like, anything that Brad Pitt's attached to. You know Brad. I know. My friend Brad. (laughs) Is he your friend now? Oh, really? Have you met him? I haven't met him, but he's a fan of the show. How could you not meet him? You need to make a point of that. He was on his way into the office and I was leaving. I mean, I work with Jeremy Kleiner. And Please so- don't tell me he's short. No, I ran away. They're like, oh. you can you can wait for Brad. He'll be here soon. And I was like, absolutely not. I cannot. Brad Pitt walks into a room. I don't know. 
I can't. I don't really agree with that reaction. I would have really been like, where's my chair? (laughs) I'm planting myself right here. I'm going to be right in the way. He is brilliant and the production company is brilliant, but we just didn't sell anything and took a risk and put it all together ourselves and then finally took it out and it ended up happening really quickly. Wow. It was competitive, but Stars was like ready to put it on the air. And I think a lot of things die in development. They just like die and people forget about them. And at that point I had put so much work in and I was like, let's do whatever we can to get it on the air. And I love making art and I love making the show, but that is a hard industry. Yeah. Why? (sighs) At an artistic level, the collaboration's really hard mm-hmm. to be delivering a product for a network who owns the material mm-hmm. and owns the show, I think is a really hard place for any writer to be in. I think that there are demands of money and time that you can have this gorgeous scene in a script and you just watch someone write an X through it. It's not going to happen. And I think that was hard to adjust to. So this season, season two of Sweet Bitter on Stars, opens up with a really tough scene, circumstance. Do you want to describe it? I know that it's a popular and it's important topic in Mm. the food industry and Mm -hmm. really in just our world, you know, kind of understanding why the scene needed to happen. But just tell me what your motivation was around it. I think that we wanted to open up with a test that is no longer new, that is in this restaurant and has kind of special aptitude for it. And the scene is a pig slaughter, and it's based on something that really happened, which is during this whole nose-to-tail food movement in the late aughts that exploded all over New York City. My ex-husband took a group of servers upstate to watch a pig slaughter to understand where their food comes from. And I do really believe that we have such a grotesque disconnect from what it means when we consume meat. And I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian, but if you can't stomach what it actually means to order a pork chop then perhaps don't order the pork chop. Maybe let that ethic inform the rest of your life. If you can watch it, what does it say about you? If you can watch it and keep eating, like who is that person? Is that person just ready for every kind of experience? Do they have some sort of special knowledge of life and death and some sort of understanding of the gravity of what they're doing? And I wanted her to be Tess, sorry. I wanted Tess to have to see it and decide if she's going to continue to play, which is where the metaphor comes in because also in that episode, she realizes that Simone is not her friend or that the face that Simone presents to her is not the full story, but decides to play, decides to to be close to her and continue the relationship. And I think that a lot of that is youth. And yeah, it's really violent. And we spent a lot of time making sure that we didn't 
cut away. Like, don't do a scene about a pig slaughter if you're not going to actually show what happens every day, over and over again. A hundred thousand times since we started talking, animals are are dying, and that is that's a fact. And I think what Howard says at the beginning of the show is just if you know where your food comes from, you can be a better ambassador for it um, or not. I, I mean, or it kind of breaks you and you can't eat meat anymore. I think she also has kind of an existential awakening too mm-hmm. afterwards and, and actually says to Howard, Yes. do you think he knew? Yeah. Do you think the pig knew? I do eat meat, not very often, but I couldn't watch it. And um, I watched a little bit of it and I... I did notice that there was intention in showing it, especially in a series that you're thinking is going to be a young girl in New York City and it has a much different energy. Yeah. And I definitely felt like the season really, that's what it's going to be about. Consequences. Yeah, exactly. You know, these little decisions that you make throughout the day add up to something. And when you're 22, you think that they don't, but you are on your way to becoming the person that you're going to be. I would love to hear what you're working on right now. You have a book that's doing... Yeah. Give me the brief. It is nonfiction, and I still don't have my sound bites for it. It's in a really raw state, but... Is it a memoir? I guess, yeah. Essays? They are autobiographical essays. I moved back to California in 2015, which is where I'm from, and my book was about to come out, but it hadn't come out yet, and I had been able to stop waiting tables. I started to work on an essay for Vogue about my father's crystal meth addiction. And I had never written about these things. I'd worked with people for a decade who didn't know anything about my parents and didn't really know anything about my childhood. And I was trying to write about my father, who I don't have in my life, and at the same time, starting to visit my mother again and kind of seeing where her disability has taken her, which is right back into alcoholism. And I really, really hate to just... There's something so hard about writing about being a child because you are blameless and it's not an interesting state to be in, to be like, you are an alcoholic, you are a drug addict, you abandoned me, you hurt me that feels so one-sided, right? And not complex or the whole truth. And I think what I was grappling with when I moved home is I'm just like them. I don't shoot crystal meth and I don't drink and hit the people that I'm close to, but I have this sort of black hole that they have that I've filled up with things over and over again throughout my life. And I didn't feel like I was going to make it, like I had to come to terms with them and who they are. So anyway, it's really not fun to write. And I think... It hasn't been fun to write? No, at all. But I published an essay in the Sewanee Review about my pregnancy and pregnancies before that did not result um, in a child. And I was deeply moved and inspired by your essays. My situation's obviously very different, but it was really about whether I could become a parent. 
And I think that that's the through line of the book. Am I going to be able to become my own parent? Am I going to be able to make healthy decisions? Will I ever be able to take care of anyone or love anyone or forgive them or myself? And so, yeah. That, I feel like you just described my life too. I think that that's good because I write this and I'm in like a vacuum with it. And I'm like, does anybody care? Does anybody care about this story? I mean, I've been so lucky. I've been so lucky in my life. And it's hard to revisit these things when I've worked so hard to put them behind me, which is kind of what the book is about is... I lived in New York for 12 years. I never went back to California. I didn't For 12 years? I mean, I went like once or twice back yeah. to California, but I didn't visit my mom and I stopped communicating with my dad after 7 years of relapses and a lot of painful um I think the the moment you realize that you are like your parents and for better or for worse, I think that that has helped to deepen my love for my mother and just also find that compassion for you yeah. know where she was in her life and what was happening and had nothing to do with me. And it's a healing, but it doesn't feel good. It's kind of just a step toward enlightenment, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know because I think the relationship between mothers and daughters is just so complicated. I know. Even when they're good. Stephanie Danler, it is an honor to have you on Unstyled today, and congratulations on season two of Sweet Bitter and the forthcoming book. I'm just so happy for you. Thank you. Very and your much. son. Yeah, he's fun. <laughs> I hope you're inspired after hearing Stephanie's story. For even more Unstyled Extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to Refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced by Rebecca Easley and Jay Brunson, with production assistance by Kate Spencer. Unstyled was edited by Priscilla Mena and Anna Costanza, and our writer is Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios and Gotham Podcast Studio. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with renowned advice columnist and author E. Jean Carroll on the precarious role of men. See you then. 